Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It is me, Steve Hall, your host as always. And today I'm very excited to have Kasim on the podcast. So Kasim Hansen um, from N1, who I think many of our audience are aware of. And I, I have had requests for Kasim to come on. So I'm really glad to actually get Kasim on. And obviously Mike Isratel, who I think all of our listeners hopefully do know by now from Renaissance Periodization. And these guys are going to be talking a bit about biomechanics. So for those of you who don't know uh, Kasim, he is the creator of N1, which educates and coaches people on individualized biomechanics, program design, and nutrition. Uh, and from what I found, Kasim, and you might be able to expand on this, you have a background in strength and conditioning and uh, you worked through the kind of polyquin principles at some stage. And I don't know if you want to expand a little bit for the listeners so they have a bit of an understanding of where you're from. Yeah, I mean, I can give just a tiny bit of background. I've been all over, but l correct in that, you know, Poliquin was kind of like my first uh, exposure to the strength and conditioning world outside of a academia, um, you know, but I mean, I've been through the ring of courses and stuff, uh, you know, been with athletes. And I would say the important thing when people talk about this is I've progressed athletes on every one of the aesthetic stages that there are, every division, every level from Olympia to natural pros to, you know, just complete amateur competitors, uh, et cetera. Um, but the thing I always like to preface is don't listen to anything that I say because of my, because of my background, like listen to it because it makes sense. If I'm not able to, if I'm not able to illustrate it to you in a way that resonates and makes sense with you, then it really doesn't matter how many letters I have behind my name. I think that's fair enough. And that's actually very refreshing uh, to hear that because I think a lot of people do, yeah. uh, especially Dr. Mike here, always saying how he's a doctor. So <laughs> I don't, that's not my advice. For, <laughs> when you hear me talk, just remember I have a PhD, which means I'm smart and a good person and I'm just going to be right. And don't worry about if it makes sense or not because like some things are so complicated, only a PhD can understand, like me. Fantastic. And to kick off, uh, Kasim, if you would, uh, to just introduce uh, the audience, I guess, broadly to maybe like the N1 principles in your biomechanics philosophy. And um, I don't know if it would be kind of a nice way to kick off and maybe some common kind of uh, myths or mistakes you see people doing in some of the big kind of common lifts that you see. Mm hmm. Yeah. So uh, N of one basically stands for N of one. Like the research term is, is like kind of looking at everybody as an individual. Um, and we take that from a principle base, like applying principles to uh, an, an individual. So in the terms of biomechanics, we're looking at an individual structure, whether that be the length of their femur to their torso ratio, the shape of their rib cage, uh, so that we can find out how they can set up for an exercise that basically gives their body the best mechanical advantage to train the tissue that you want to train, right? Because, you know, you think about the way our brain works, it's always trying to make things easier. So one of the easiest way to, to like improve in an exercise is to actually position your body and choose the appropriate exercises that make doing it well thoughtless. I think so many people see these fancy exercises or they read that like this is the way to do this and then they confine themselves and restrict themselves and that may not work well for their, their body, right? Or the exercise might be working fine, but it's not training 
the thing they think it is, right? So that throws off their stimulus calculation, their volume, and, and, and all of those things because uh, a great example, for instance, is the squat. So you have two people squat. You have somebody that's built like, you know, like a Chinese weightlifter that has tiny femurs and long torso, and they can pretty much squat any way they want. Their knees go forward, you know, their hips fold, everything is nice and pretty. Um, and then you bring in the person that's got a femur that seems like it's a mile long and a torso that's like super, super small. Uh, and they try and replicate the same squatting principles and it just doesn't work, right? Because they have to bend over so much more to maintain a center mass. So you take a picture of their squat and compare it to anything other than perfectly standing up. And they're essentially doing two different exercises, right? Like one person's squat looks more like an RDL at the top and the other ones might look more like a, like a hack squat or Hatfield squat at the top, all depending on those levers. And then we also have individual joint structures, you know, um, ankle mobility, all of these things. Um, so what we focus on is assessing basically on a person's structure and then what they have available, which is gonna come down to what kind of strengths have they built up and what kind of motor pattern recruitment do they have? Like how do they get what they want out of a movement or how do they know that that movement just doesn't happen to be the best for that particular goal, right? So some people, they can, they can get whatever they want out of a squat. And for other people, they may need a heel lift, right? Or, you know, they, they, they may need to alter their range of motion or something like that. Um, or they may just need to accept that, like, I want to use squats because, you know, squats are good. But you're going to need more accessory work to get to make that a quad dominant leg day or a hip dominant leg day or, or whatever it may be. So, and that carries into our programming. The way we think about programming is based on the foundations of being able to take qualities of exercises and kind of like really kind of break them down, whether an exercise happens to say overload the lengthened position of a movement. So there's gonna be more mechanical trauma when I do a certain number of sets or take that to a certain degree of failure, where another exercise might not be very heavy in the bottom position. So I might be able to use that exercise when I'm focusing a little bit more on like metabolic type stimulus, right? And kind of just understanding how I can use both the biomechanics and then understanding the qualities that an exercise presents to give somebody not only the best mechanical solution in training, but also the best physiological outcome. So I think, you know, when, when we're talking with Mike here, if this progresses from like biomechanics all the way into program design, you're going to see that we may apply things quite differently but we're going to end up having kind of the same principal foundations, uh, but we just kind of uh, probably have very different systems of using those principles. That's at least what I think is 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 going to unfold. And I guess, Kasim, in terms of program design, uh, where do you place? Because I guess we're talking about kind of exercise selection and even deeper into exercise selection, it's kind of like individualizing the exercise to the person. Mm -hmm. Where do you place that in terms of like your programming hierarchy is that something you come to later yes yeah, so for me i actually view exercise selection probably much more important than mike does but i think the thing we'll agree on is that the competency and execution of those movements is still the primary thing um, but i think that for a given goal outcome i'm going to I'm going to value what exercises we pick to a very good degree because I'm taking it down. I'm not applying it to a general. I'm taking it down to the individual and I'm saying, okay, if this person is going to squat, okay, 
and their goal is to bring up their quads. What is the most effective way for them to squat and get the most out of quads? And we can talk about that from everything, um, from a mechanics perspective to a, um, I believe you call it like a stimulus versus fatigue ratio, like all of those things come into play in terms of not only the individual exercise, but the grand scheme of the program is like, what is the best quad exercises for you to be doing, right? So for instance, say, from outside the mechanics, if I want to include a lot more spinal loading because I want to do a lot of RDLs and depending on the frequency and loading that I'm using those, maybe I choose the hack squat over the squat to allow more like kind of systemic volume for those other exercises where I want to load the spine, right? Because when we look at like neural drive and stuff and you start, you know, looking at the stuff over the course of the week, right? The more I load the spine, maybe the less I can work at certain intensities of the of those other exercises. So, and then there's the overlap. So, you know, how's my split? If I'm training these back to back, maybe I don't want to load the glutes two days in a row. So I'm going to pick something that's very knee extension dominant based and not hip dominant, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe I'm really going to be focusing on a lot more isolated hamstring and glute based work. So I want to have that squat in there. So it's the context of taking everything from the individual's mechanics to the stimulus that you're trying to get, whether that be more like traumatizing mechanical tension versus metabolic stuff or focusing on tension without as much trauma. We focus on, um, instead of, uh, I didn't want to ramble here, but uh, like you get, you, you use the MRV, uh, right? Like the maximum recovery volume um, and, and those type of parameters. And we use uh, what we call trainability, which is, a it's think of it as like kind of like the same thing as it's trainability for us is the difference between what do I need to initiate kind of those adaptations? And then how does that compare to my ability to recover from that stress? But we take it down to kind of a specific thing. So we look at, it's almost think of it like, think of it like there was an MRV for the different physiological stresses that occur in training. So we're looking at trainability. We're looking at, okay, what can this person tolerate from recovering from mechanical stress versus neurological stimulus versus like systemic biochemical stress to local biochemical stress to the immune uh, response from mechanical trauma and biochemical stress being combined. So we're kind of thinking like, okay, if this person can recover from a lot of this, but not a lot of that, I'm gonna choose my exercise selection, my reps, my tempo and whatnot to kind of push it towards the thing that they have the best ability to recover from right now. And then I can focus on shifting towards whatever I need to do to improve my recovery in those other areas. And that's kind of how we periodize too, is it's, it's kind of, um, we use a, you could call it a mechanistic approach to programming, right? So we were using these fine rules of biomechanics of like, where is this hard? And you know, what length of the muscle is it challenging? How is that affecting the physiological stress if we apply this reps and this tempo to it? And then how can we use that to start really differentiating different styles of programming? That's too much. Sorry. But, no, it's, um, it, it's great. I think yeah, because um, at least for me, this is really great. I'm learning a lot more about kind of your philosophies here. And I think Mike probably is as well. And I don't know if now is a good time. If there was anything there, Mike, you wanted to kind of touch on uh, in relation to what Kasim has said. I think that all sounds really, really good. Um, a lot of that stuff, all of it makes perfect sense. And um, I think it's really important to not, uh, Kasim, as you sort of alluded to, 
kind of deifying an exercise of like you have to do this you don't mm -hmm. the purpose of doing exercise for hypertrophy training is to initiate hypertrophy where we want it and anytime that we want to initiate hypertrophy uh, of a certain local muscle group we have a lot of exercises to choose from they all have their upsides and downsides and they all have their different stimulus to fatigue ratios which are very individual a common question i get on instagram is like man i'm like squatting but i'm not getting a lot out of it but like hack squats are great you know what should i do i'm like well you know you can always work on your squatting technique and work on how to get a lot out of it but i would say it's a good idea for you to have a lot of meat and potatoes hack squat work right now um, because it seems to work well and i'm not going to tell you that this hack squatting is terrible for you somehow it's not uh, a lot of times i get weird questions like what's better leg press or hack squat and i'm like that is a nonsensical question. <laughs> the question for you is, what generates better proxies of quadriceps stimulus and what generates lower fatigue proxies between those two? And they could be very roughly even. And the complexity there is, as you do hack squats for weeks and weeks and months and months, sometimes they develop staleness. And then all of a sudden, because it's fresher and newer, the leg press actually has a better stimulus to fatigue ratio temporarily than the hack squat. So once you hack squat, you do for a while and it starts to you know, sort of burn out on you, you can switch to light pressing and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. So I think a lot of people are coming at like, well, I have to do this lift, right? And a lot of the, the answer to that is absolutely no, you don't. But at the same time, I do get real skeptical. And this is one of those unfortunate parts of sort of answering questions on social media is people will say, you know, like, um, I don't feel my squat in my quads. What are some tips? Well, I can always give some general tips, but I have no idea what this person looks like, what their actual squat looks like. And sometimes what I've been led to believe over years of coaching is, a lot of times you want to give like really high level, super advanced advice, but the reality is like you see their actual squat and you're like, oh my God, but hold up, move your feet closer together, sit more down than back. And they're like, oh my God, my quads. And you're like, fuck, I just kind of assumed everyone knows this by now, but that's not nearly remotely the case. So individualization of exercise technique is a question I always ask myself if I'm training someone like actually they're my client before we start abandoning exercises, like saying, ah, you're not really a squat or you're more of a hack water more of a leg presser, I want to make sure that we've at least done a good college try of getting their biomechanics in the hacks or in the, the barbell squat to something that remotely approaches something you would guess would stimulate the quads, at least in an external analysis. Because if they're if they're doing like a West Side barbell sitting all the way back, bending halfway down squat, and they're like, I don't feel it in my quads, I'm like, guess what? The good news is the squat's not a bad exercise for your quads. The bad news is you haven't been squatting. You've just been telling yourself you've been squatting and you've been doing a whole different exercise. So if we get you squatting more correctly that in a, in a way that for your body type would theoretically stimulate your quads, then you're well on your way. But if it happens that once we get you there and it's still maybe a better quad exercise but not the greatest, we don't have to squat. We don't have to squat as often. We don't have to squat as much. We could do more leg pressing, hack squatting, other things. And also we can make use of pre-exhausting. So instead of a lot of people will say like, I got to squat first, then I leg press, right? No, well, maybe. But if you, like you described, you have very long femurs and short torso, you can toast your quads with a leg press. And then once you get to squatting, your quads are now so tired, they are the limiting factors in your squat where usually your glutes and hamstrings would be and your quads would barely feel a thing. So now we've re-engineered through pre-exhaustion the squat to be a very good quad exercise for you. Now, does that mean that you'll squat as much? No, your quads are tired. You're going to squat less. There's a benefit there. You have less axial loading and less systemic fatigue because of that because you don't have to squat 200 kilos anymore. Now you can squat 150 and get the same benefit. And also, I think people lose sight of this. Like sometimes people have this like 
sort of conglomeration of like strength and size, like that's what I want. And they're like, fundamentally, they just want to get bigger. And they're like, well, if I'm squatting less, it's less overload, right? I'm like, overload is tissue specific and actually muscle cell specific. So if your quads are getting bashed like crazy, but you're not squatting as much, you have accomplished as much or more overload with less fatigue. Like that's a win. But a lot of people just don't see it like that. They're like, so how do I get my squat up? And there's times, especially for higher level athletes, where getting your squat up versus getting your quads bigger through squatting are divergent things. Like if you wanted to get someone to squat the most weight on the bar, it'd immediately say, sit back more than you're sitting down, put the bar in a low bar position, and make sure that your torso is no longer very upright, but has a lean to it so you can leverage all of your posterior chain or lift that weight. And they're going to be like, man, I'm squatting super PRs. My quads are going to be big. It's like, okay, do you feel it more in your quads? Like, no, I feel it more in my glutes now. Like, well, your glutes are really big and strong, which is great. It's going to make you a great squatter. And they're like, okay, so how do I squat to make my quads bigger? Well, more Chinese weightlifter style, or as much of that style as your body can accommodate. And they'll be like, yeah, but I can't lift as much. Well, so which one do you want? Do you want bigger quads or do you want to lift the most amount of weight? Because those are not always the same goal. And unfortunately, in Kassel, I'm sure you can rant about this longer. I see a lot of folks who are sort of really, really big and strong, sometimes pro bodybuilders, and they'll like, um, they'll have this, again, deification of heavy weight, which uh, means that the biomechanics of the exercise are like some kind of sick joke at that point, but they're still putting heavy weight in. So they'll do like incline dumbbell presses, except like a third of range of motion. They'll be like, I handle the 150s today. Now it's just a matter of dialing in the technique over the next couple of weeks. Like, wouldn't you want to dial the technique in first? Don't you want every session to be stimulative of what you want, which is to actually target your packs and then let the strength come from that versus the other way around? Like, uh, to me, a lot of that stuff comes up quite a bit. Fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. Go on, Kasim. Go. So, so to kind to kind of build on that, because this is, I mean, so, uh, so for our philosophies, we're we're very technique orientated. So, like, if we give somebody a squat, we do, like we don't have a squat in our in our, our exercise library. We have quad dominant, like like level like levels of squats. So, if somebody's squatting for quads. There's all of this like, well, this is this is kind of the troubleshooting guide and the progressions to get the most quad out of this. Um, so that right off the bat, if we're working with somebody, we know like, well, our squad's going to be a, a viable option because we are we're stimulus based, right? This kind of what we're focusing on. So if we're going to use a, a pre-exhaust technique where we're going to do leg extension and, and then squats, what we're looking at is like, well, does that still fit in the realm of the the stimulus that I wanted, right? Because, okay, is that extra systemic work of having a little bit more gluten adductor in the leg press and, you know, having that, uh, or I'm sorry, um, having those things come in a little bit more afterwards, the longer time under tension, lower relative intensity, does it still meet the physiological goal? I mean, we can still trash the quads per se with like any method, pre-exhaust, post-exhaust, partial, like all sorts of different things. But the question is, did we trash it in the intended way? And I think that's kind of where our philosophies are going to be a little bit different is um, we're using a little bit more like when we, I'm setting up a program in terms of hypertrophy, I'm kind of limiting myself in terms of like, I'm trying to accomplish these specific mechanisms of hypertrophy as efficiently uh, as possible. So if, for instance, I'm trying to promote very low metabolic stress, but a lot of mechanical stress, well, then a pre-exhaust is a, is, is a bad option because it comes with a lot of extra metabolic work to do it versus being able to do something where I can load the quads at higher intensity in that length of position. Now, 
still could possibly use that pairing, but this is where something like, well, a post exhaust might actually be, uh, you know, a better option and something like that, uh, or finding a way to say like, okay, if, if we have to use leg extension and squat, if we constrict ourselves to those rules, right? And I want to get that. It's like, well, okay, if I have the leg extension, which basically challenges knee extension through the entire range of motion, but it's, you know, depending on the leg extension, what the cam is shaped at or whatever, um, how much output am I going to get out of there? And where is that going to be taxing? And then when we look at, the, okay, if they have a hip dominant squat, the best way for me to get mechanical trauma is the bottom of that squat. But if the way they fold, their knee flexion stops and then they have like four more inches that they sink and it's all hip flexion. Well, if I pause down there or do partial reps or they come out of that, I, I use that exercise as my length and quad exercise, it still ends up transferring over to probably more glutes than I would like. So I'm going to need to adjust mechanically somehow. How can I do that? And that's where we'll use something like a heel elevation so that I can drive the knees forward, make the knee flexion more dominant, get them more upright, right? And take the glutes out of it more, push the knees further away from the center of mass. We got a ton more loading. It's like, that's a better solution for a mechanical process without adding a lot of mechan uh, metabolic stress uh, in my mind. So when I'm trying to achieve that set goal, it's like, well, okay, rather than going to two exercises, can I, can I do something with their squat to accomplish that goal? Um, or maybe two exercises is, the, is, 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 is a good way to go, right? So maybe I do want the metabolic outcome. But if I was doing the metabolic outcome, I would finish with the leg extension in this scenario. Um, because if I'm going for more metabolic stress and less mechanical trauma, then I want to focus on the most mechanic or most metabolically taxing position, which is going to be a muscle closer to its shortest length because there's the highest amount of me metabolic demand to me mechanical stress there, which is, which is a valuable tool because, I mean, when we use a metabolic stress, we usually can take advantage of that if we reduce a little bit of the mechanical stress because we can train more frequently because we don't have to recover. It takes a lot less to recover uh, from a biochemical stress as long as it doesn't like – damage the body from an immune perspective and we have this huge response that we have to come from um we can train more frequently so depending on how that program structured if i'm thinking mechanical trauma my training frequency per muscle is going to be a little bit less my exercise selection is going to be geared towards what fits that if i'm training for more of a metabolic stimulus well then i'm going to pick exercises that fit that more directly and that's going to allow me to use frequency as more of a tool whereas the mechanical trauma i might use volume as more of the tool to accomplish that stimulus over the course of the week program, mesocycle, macrocycle, et cetera. That's interesting. I guess I would come from the perspective of if we're using an exercise to target a muscle group, mm -hmm. I usually prefer that that muscle group's performance is the limiting factor to that exercise's performance. Otherwise, I don't really consider it as a primary tool to train that muscle group. So if the reason Essentially, if you do a set of squats and you're, let's say, poorly leveraged for them or we haven't done all the tweaks we can to make them more quad dominant and you go to failure, a set of eight, let's say, and we can ask the question of, you know, right before you got to failure in the movement, how close to failure were the individual muscle contributors to that movement. Mm -hmm. And if your glutes were one rep shy of failure, your spinal erectors were one rep shy, 
and your quads were six reps shy of failure, because it's just not a very quad dominant movement, then I would say that that is not a great movement to use for training the quads and putting it first is a fine idea, uh, but I would just put it nowhere at that point and try to pick another movement or alter the movement. So what I would say is we want to get to a position where the squat, the quads are coming closer to their own mechanical failure, pretty close to when the movement comes to failure, if not leading the way. Like I think we've all failed the squat because quads just can't produce enough force. Your back feels fine. Your glutes feel fine. You just stop midair. You're like, nope, that's it. My quads just can't do this. And that's really what we want because getting close proximity to failure um, means that we maximize the uh, anabolic stimulus, which is a very good thing. And also means that we're not overusing other muscles and generating a ton of fatigue in them. So when it comes time to train them in their own times, glutes and uh, spinal rectors and so on and so forth, they don't have a needless amount of fatigue built up from something. So the first thing I would try to do is make sure that squat gets us close to the quads being a limiting factor if we're using the squat to target the quads. That's the only thing you can use the squat for, but let's say in this example, that's what we're doing. And then if we were going to use pre-exhausting in that situation, but we had the goal of keeping the uh, loading higher and keeping the repetitions lower to, uh, let's say, put forward more of a tension-based stimulus than more of a metabolite stimulus, then what we could do is put somebody on the leg press or hack squat first and do sets of five to 10 reps. And that is not a metabolic pre-exhaust. Uh, that is a, a tension-based stimulus that still degrades the muscle's ability to produce force to some extent and still sums up metabolites and still makes that muscle more limiting factor in anything we do later. It essentially, because the, you know, the quads are so not positioned to receive force or produce force in a person's normal squat and the spinal rectors and glutes are, we want to sort of close that gap a little bit. So we do, let's say, four sets of leg presses, five to 10 reps, still a compound movement. It still check marks our tension stimulus. And then we move into those squats where before the quads were six reps in reserve when mechanical failure occurred for the lift because the lift occurred because glute uh, and the spinal erector failure happened and our technique just went like that. We just had to dump the bar. Now, because we've done four sets of leg presses before, uh, first of all, we have to use less weight for the squat. And second of all, maybe we didn't achieve our goal of our quads or what failed first, but maybe now when the spinal erectors and glutes still fail us first, our quads are two reps shy of where they would be complete inability to produce enough force to continue the movement. That gives them more what you would call effective reps. Uh, six versus two is a big deal. And all of a sudden the squat is now a more effective movement, relatively speaking, for the quads um, not for the whole movement because clearly we had to take weight off the bar, but as far as being a stimulus to fatigue ratio for the quads, it's now better because we did some leg pressing first and made quads more of a limiting factor. Um, you can imagine this as if someone had 50% of their normal quad strength uh, and they were not a leveraged quad squatter the quads would blow up on them every time they squatted because they would be by far the most lagging muscle group and by far 
be the limiting factor and take most of of the hits because essentially you would stop in the squat five or ten reps shy of where your spinal erectors and glutes were even feeling anything and then the, the quads even though you were very poorly leveraged your uh squat would be very very well tailored for the, for the squat so what i would say is pre-fatiguing um pre-exhausting or whatever you call it doesn't have to be done with high repetitions to generate a lot of metabolites and generate a pump it can be done with any range of repetitions to essentially do two things one make the uh, compound exercise after it more targeted towards that uh, isolated part but also to get really good high quality training for that isolated part because you could say if we took a squat that we weren't well leveraged for and we did it first and then did leg presses after you're now the leg presses after you have to deal with the fatigue built up uh, systemically and locally from squatting local fatigues it actually adds to the stimulus so we can cross that off the list but the systemic fatigue, like you're tired after squatting, and now you won't have as good of a leg press session. Uh, problem number one. Problem number two is the squat's not a great quad builder for you anyway, so you did like sort of a mediocre exercise that more or less just made you tired and then fucked over your later quad training. But if you flip the two around and leg press first, so that's a five to ten still, you get a great four sets of leg press, great quad stimulus, and now it makes the squatting after even more stimulative, relatively speaking, to your quads. It's kind of a win-win in that regard. So I don't think pre-exhaust necessarily needs to be uh, metabolic in nature, it can be any kind of stimulus, whether it be tension, metabolite, so on and so forth, as long as it makes that target muscle more of a limiting factor than it was prior. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the podcast. Just wanted to take one moment of your time to actually talk about our coaching services over at Revive Stronger. We at Revive Stronger, we offer an incredible premium personal coaching service just for people like you, and I know you will love it. Do you want to work with us? Here's what I need you to do. Head over to revivestronger.com. Go up to the coaching tab, click on online coaching. Once there, read through the requirements and what it takes to be an online client. Once finished, hit apply now and you're only one step away from applying to our services. Fill out the Google form and you're done. And that was basically it. A coach is going to reach out to you shortly and then it's Team Revive Stronger. Cool. Um... I'm so I we we agree very much on your on your first point in that like if somebody's not uh you know if they're not structured for the good squat definitely going to try and do whatever we can to make that quad dominant if that's not possible then just throw it out on quad day it just doesn't need, need to exist there uh 100% agree with there now something to consider as we continue digging down this kind of pre post exhaust and and using these these two exercise combinations um and for everybody listening, just understand that talking biomechanics with zero visuals, with like face-to-face -face and no actual subject is extremely difficult to like have two people have a debate when I'm visualizing one person and Mike's visualizing another person. And we just had this conversation and nobody said anything about how many reps, you know, so those, those, those things, this is what context is key. Um, so if we build a little bit more context around this argument so that people can kind of um, see where that goes. So yes, yeah, we pre or post exhaust a variety of rep ranges, intensities, like we can accomplish a variety of stimulus with a low rep pre exhaust or heavy light method or whatever uh, you, you would want to do. Um, just a couple of things to consider. So say we do whatever we pre exhaust, like, so we'll use a leg extension because I think we can both agree the leg extension is a quad dominant exercise. We can debate about it, squats and leg presses and all that, but I think we'll be on the same page that leg extensions all quads. So if we say that's going to be kind of 
of our exercise that we're using, we do leg extension and then we go, then we go into this squat, which we have now adjusted, whether that be from a technique perspective, a heel elevation, bar position change, all of combination, it, yeah, all, all of them, whatever we needed to do to make this a respectable quad exercise. Okay. What we need to take into consideration is that our nervous system is very good at adapting, especially in these big compound movements. So if you have an exercise like a squat and you have the ability to shift between, you know, how much torque is at the hip versus how much is at the knee, when we come into it in a pre-fatigue state is our body is already solving the problem of that pre-fatigue, meaning that it is going to try and limit the amount of stress on the quads and shift this much of that over to the hips and glutes. Now, our ability to resist that and direct it towards the quads depends on how well we were able to redesign that squat. So if we were able to say, take them from a very hip dominant squat to a somewhat balanced squat, and then we pre-exhausted, we, we would still be probably taking up a lot of fatigue in the glutes and the hams because, and then they're mentally going to be fighting the fact that they're, they're going to want to be kicking their ass back. So they're going to want to, it's going to be more mentally challenging and that's going to be from a pain perspective too. But the, from the nervous system is going to want to say like mechanically, we do not have the leverage at the knee that we did when we had fresh quads. So when I go to fold, I am going to try and shift my levers to bias more of that load on the hips because that's the best neurological and mechanical solution to overcoming this weight that's on my back. So that then requires a little bit more mental effort to fight that. Now, if we throw somebody in a hip or in a, in a hack squat, so if we did leg extension and then hack squat, that reduces a lot of those issues. I mean, there's still a tiny bit where, yeah, your hips are, you can still do hip extension in a hack squat. There's still that component of glutes and, and adductors contributing to hip extension in there. But because we can't push the hips back, we can't change the leverage that we have in that exercise. It's a lot easier to use like a pre-exhaust or something like that and really be able to change that. But when we're in an exercise where our body has the ability to shift load, from a technique perspective, an effort perspective, and just a logistical perspective, it is harder to do that. Now, say we made a respectable squat, whether it was a balanced squat or whatever, um, we took it maybe just shy of failure. We don't necessarily have to go to failure. We can go a little bit shy of failure because maybe we don't want to take the glutes and the erectors to as much uh, fatigue. And then we jump into something like the leg, leg extension immediately afterwards that's going to be a solution where that's going to be a more quad biased environment because in that first exercise we were able to use the maximum quad potential in that squat and then we went to an exercise that was even more isolated and also in that fatigue state it's mentally easier the technique the execution the neurological demand of that second exercise is, is it's easier to accomplish. So, I mean, it's not that any of these methods are wrong per se. I mean, we're starting to get to the point where, okay, like we're, we could kind of like make the argument for depending on some types of goals, whether, okay, I want to be big and strong, but what's the ratio of big and strong you want to be? And is there a certain lift type that you want to be strong in or et cetera, um, that we could kind of shift an argument towards one or the other. But um, those are just things that like, those are things to, that we look at then from a, a biomechanics perspective and a neuromuscular perspective is like, okay, if I go into a squat pre-exhausted in the quads, it's not the same exercise, right? So regardless of what the, so I would have to have a very good squat. So if in a real world scenario, if I had a good squatter for quads, 
they had the ability to do a quad do very quad dominant squat. Then the model of doing a leg extension and then a squat afterwards is a more feasible option for that end of one person to me because the likelihood that I can maybe even push that squat even more quad dominant with some heel elevation or bar position changes or whatever so that I can make sure that second squat, even though the body's gonna wanna use the hips, is still gonna be predominantly quads, that's a feasible option. If I have somebody and their squat is just like, it's like the best I can do is get it to balance, which makes it like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on maybe I'm gonna use that leg extension afterwards because I am complicating the mechanics of that lift and just making their life hell by setting them in an exercise where they already wanted to use their hips before and now their quads are tired going into it. I'm likely, I'll still be able to achieve more quads than not, but it's not the best solution for them if I pre-exhausted. They would be, it would be both from a, a mechanical perspective and just an execution perspective, easier for them to do it the other way around. Now, if my goal is I want to hit that quad with a higher intensity exercise, just not going to use the squat. I'll go use a hack squat, right? Or I'll do a heel elevated like Hatfield squat, sissy squat, like some other variation that doesn't put them uh, that, that I'm able to overcome the structural limitations. If that makes sense. Yeah. So when you do squat first, leg extension after, you're carrying more systemic fatigue from that squat into that leg extension. So your performance on the leg extension would be lower than it usually would be if you did it fresh, I guess. Yes. So the total fraction of that workout that is really getting to quads as a limiting factor is lower because by not pre-exhausting the quads, we got to use our glutes and hamstrings a bit more than usual. We got to lift bigger loads in the squat, which is good, but most of them are taken up by glutes and hams because we're not quad dominant squatter. And then afterwards in that fatigued state, we go to leg extensions where it's like, you did a great squat, the job that didn't really help you grow your quads much, but no worries. Now it's time to do leg extensions, which are really good for your quads because you know you leverage for dick else pretty much. Then we're putting them in a situation where they're now quad specific exercise, leg extension, which I'm not a big fan of at all. I think leg presses are better in almost every way, mm -hmm. um, but we'll just use leg extension, it's totally fine. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, then, you know, you're putting them into a situation where they're supposed to use leg extensions, which is their big time to train their quads, but they're carrying a lot of systemic fatigue. And so their performance is going to be good, but maybe not as good as it could be. On the other hand, if you do pre-exhaust with leg extensions first, you get the most you'll ever get out of leg extensions for whatever gnarly sets of quad-specific work. Then when you go to squats after that, whatever to whatever extent they're used to using their glutes and hands or whatever because they're just well leveraged to do that, quads are to some extent a limiting factor. Let's say their uh, glutes and spinal rectors are one rep away from failure and their quads are usually six reps away from failure in any one given lift. If we pre-exhaust with leg extensions first, now we might get to a point where their leg extensions are going to be uh, two or three reps away, sorry, their quads are two or three reps away from failure on that squat after leg extensions instead of six, which is a lot more high quality reps delivered uh, stimulus-wise to the quads, uh, which is a good thing. But they're going to, like you said, very, very good point, that they're going to try to squeak out of that and uh, not use their quads because they're not going to want to be limited by their quads. They're going to be like, well, my quads are tired. I better not fucking use them and go somewhere else. So 
you know, leverage away from it by using, you know, so potentially as maybe more tilt and less flexion at the knee. I think that's absolutely a thing that uh, beginners and intermediates can succumb to. But I think we have a really big advantage there that we can use to ameliorate the situation. And that's the mind muscle connection and the understanding that the goal of the training is to stimulate the quads. So when that person begins to squat, you don't simply just let them squat and say, hey, this automatically quad exercise. You say, listen, your quads are going to feel weaker. They're going to feel tired. They're going to have a more of a burn sooner. What I want you to do is if you notice yourself moving away from a way of squatting that hurts the quads more, you're doing it wrong, move into the quads. So like when you sit down in a squat Chinese weightlifter style, you're sitting literally just into the quads and you know for a goddamn good fact when your quads are getting hit. Now, if you're a person who's not leveraged well for squatting and you're not pre-exhausted, it may be difficult to even find out which way stimulates your quads more because basically nothing does, nothing even comes close. But if your squats are pre-exhausted from leg extensions, it's going to be profoundly easy to see where your strength deficit is, where the metabolite accumulation is, where the fatigue is, and where the strain and stress of the quads having been beat up already with four sets are really feeling it. Then you can use that as a cue of what to look for. So the purpose of each squat knows no longer stand up any way you can. The purpose of each squat is on the eccentric, sit into your quads in such a way that you feel them fatigued, you feel like they're burning, you feel like they're hurting you, you feel like they're stopping you, and then when you hit bottom and come up, come up in such a way as to stay completely as upright as you can and push through your quads, which is, you know, technique is super, super critical to all the execution of the lifts. If you pre-exhaust someone with their legs, yes, there is a chance they can mosey away from that in the squat to be like, I just have to squat as much as possible, and they start doing the pendulum squat where they like push their hips out, push their hips out, push their hips out, and don't sit into their knees. But if you're coaching them in such a way, like, listen, we are here to fuck your quads up with the squat, the good news is the, pre, uh, the pre-exhaust makes that easier because the quads are closer to fuck to begin with. And second of all, it gives us a perceptive cue of the quads being more pumped, their quads being more tired, and quicker lactate accumulation, which results in pain. So then in the last five reps, when you have local lactate and metabolite accumulation pain in the quads in that squat, you know... If you do your next rep and the pain kind of goes away a little bit, you're like, yep, I glued ham the fuck out of that one. That was wrong. Next rep, I'm going to sit into my quads and fry them shits to get the most pain I can. And I would say that's not too much to ask a lifter to search for pain, find it, and find the most inconvenient way to lift because the entire idea of lifting is to inconvenience yourself. Yes, human beings are designed, the body realigns itself to try to stay away from fatigued areas to accomplish a lift. But the best way to stay away from fatigue is just not lift weights at all. You just don't come to the gym. Because you come to the gym and you're searching for the best kind of hypertrophy training, you know you're going to be in some pain. I have this situation where like when I do hamstring curls, I'll be doing hamstring curls and I'm like, fuck, this hurts. If I can just kind of like hit mosey or something, just get the tension off the hams, the pain would be added every time I stop myself and say, no, I'm here specifically to collect these gold coins of pain. The most pain I can have in my hamstrings from this, that's why I'm here. That is what's stimulating the actual processes of growth. So I'll reinvest with every rep and search for the pain, look for the pain, look for the pain in the hams, not the glutes, not anywhere else. And that produces the best kind of work. So if you have that kind of mindset and coaching along with it, you can take a pre-exhaust like a leg extension and have that make your squatting after better. But I do absolutely hear your point that if you don't have that mindset, you can come in and do pre-exhaust leg extension, miss out on super heavy mechanical stimulus of the squats. Now that you're tired from leg extensions, you can't use as much weight on the squats. And then you just do the same garbage squats you always did, except worse now that you're trying to get away from your quads. So I think at first we have to understand we're trying to hit our quads. And every time our body's going to wiggle us away from that, which it does either way, 
we're going to be able to wiggle it back. And the big benefit is once the quads are pre-exhausted, it's easier to find how to hurt them. It's like if you have an injury, if you're fighting an opponent and he has a clearly a broken knee, you see that and you're like, I'm going to hit him right fucking there, which if he doesn't have a broken knee, you're like, I don't know where to hit him. He's like, you know, I don't know. I always think of when I'm fighting an opponent, he's like a giant mutated anthropomorphic alligator. And I just don't want to get bit by the alligator jaws. I have no idea where I just went off on that tangent. That's going to be really hard to kick the alligator in the knee. Just, um, you might have to alligators and have knees. Who knows? <laughs> um, Okay, couple couple things. I because I, I suspect I mean, we may be on the same point, but I'm not. All right. So when, when we're talking about this pre post exhausting, are you looking at this as exercise order throughout the workout? Or are you looking at this as in conjunction as a superset? No, no. Well, so you can do it as a superset, but that introduces a See, myriad of other I'm, complexities. So, so that's I think where we're deviating is I'm looking at this as a superset. Just exercise I, order, four sets of leg extensions, then four sets of squats, as opposed to four sets of squats and then four sets of leg extensions. With a superset, it would be so, similar, but then you yes. have like fatigue buildup and all this other stuff that we have to deal with. Yeah, Supersetting yeah, with squats so, is always a disaster anyway. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, this, so this, this is where these things become challenging, right? So from the get-go, when, we, when we're talking about, okay, how do we make a better – how do we overcome the squat? You were looking at it over the course of the entire workout, and I was looking at, okay, I'm going to combine two exercises in that same realm to re- to – to cover the squat in a superset like bang bang action. I would say right? that so, similar principles apply. I, I'm comfortable conserving my stance t- tentatively for the superset example as well. I think if you were going to do a superset to target the quads, leg extensions first would be better than squats first. So, okay. So, all right. So let, let's look at that scenario then. Um, Cause I, I, I agree more with you if we look at it in terms of the, the exercise order, like in terms of like I did all of my, leg extensions first and then i did my my squats later but when we do them back to back um this is where i see like so the same rationale that you are using for validating the uh, you know the lighter squat but more getting the quads closer to failure use that same rationale to go against doing the leg extension second because if we are supersetting them back to back and we look at this stimulus as it's like one exercise i mean we're doing we're doing two exercises, but from a muscular perspective, we're putting one single stress over it on the course of this window of time, right? And which of those am I going to be able to take the quads to a greater degree of failure, right? So if I take myself to a certain, like if I take, if I push myself in a leg extension and then I jump into a squat, right? Regardless, you know, you can think I, I train like a piece of shit. I don't care. Um, but like, you know, I'd like to think that I'm pretty good at training after all of these years. I've seen your in videos. You scen- train very, in very hard. In that scenario, I'm still going to be very limited. Like if I'm doing it bang to bang in a super set based fashion, I'm going to be very limited on the output that I can get. I mean, I can make it miserable, but it's just simple. Like, I mean, those, the, that neurological inhibition is just going to come in and there's just like, there's only so much that willpower can do to say continue pushing the quads in order to get to any degree of like quadricep failure i mean i'm gonna have to be like you know squatting a broomstick at that point in time but if i do it the other way around i can train with a relative intensity in a balanced fashion right where it's like okay i'm 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 doing my balance squat and then i go to the leg extension i can take it to the point where you know i can't move that freaking leg extension like three inches like i can take it to a much greater degree of fatigue and i can suffer just as much without having to think about it right and so not only can i in my mind i'm looking at that and i'm like from a mechanical and a neurological perspective i can get to a much greater degree of failure 
doing that post-exhaust method in a superset fashion than I could doing the the pre-exhaust because there's just there's more neurological demand for the second exercise. There's you know there's more technique things to go through, and it's just like simple. I mean, it's, it's just just the simple mechanics of the lift at that point in time. It's like I can only push forward like because what's going to happen is I'm just I'm going to fail earlier unless I'm worked down to an abysmal level of weight. I'm just going to reach failure thing, right? really early, right? Well, yeah, it can be, right? Um, but if but if I go to the leg extension, I might be able to use still a respectable amount of weight and use like range of motion failure, right? So one of the things that we use is like when we look at like how deep a failure can go, and it's like, okay, you have your RIRs, but then what do you qualify everything beyond zero RIR? Whereas we'll go into like on a leg extension, we can say, well, your degree of failure is when you can't complete three quarters of a rep or half a rep or a quarter of a rep. And like, those are varying degrees of, of digging deep or to where you're like pinned in the machine. Like those are all options. Like I can get to the point where I'm basically sitting in a chair and can't lift my shoes level of, of a failure. I can't do that in a squat, right? Cause one, my body weight, that's the base weight, right? Like there, um, which slightly heavier than just my, you know, tibia to foot <laughs> weight. Um, so setting those two things up, I go in that first exercise and able to take advantage of doing the higher, like neural demanding exercise first and the higher technique demanding exercise first, and then immediately go into something where I can thoughtlessly, it's a closed chain. Like I'm going to hit failure regardless of what the mechanics are in the quads. And I can take it to an infinite degree of failure. Like I can, I can go as deep as I want. I don't, I don't, I wonder about that because the central fatigue imposed, the systemic fatigue imposed by squatting first might prevent your ability to generate neural drive to the quads and you will reach perceived failure, but more of that failure might have to do with the fact that the nervous system just runs out of juice versus the fact that local uh, mechanical ability to produce force at the muscle has run its course. So I think that if you look at it from your analogy of taking a leg press or a leg extension way the hell to crazy failure, let's say you did that first. First of all, you would have complete blank slate systemic fatigue. So you would be able to just crush the living fucking shit out of your quads, get everything out of them that you want. And then we can examine what a squat looks like afterwards. Well, first of all, we have to use a fraction of the weight to hit the quads just the same or to get the same amount of local activity at the quadriceps. The squat is now very much quad limited, and that is to say quad dominant, and you need a very tiny amount of any sort of technique for it to be quad. So for example, if your quads are so fucked up that you can't lift your foot, all you need to do is sit down in a chair and stand up, no technique, and your quads will be the limiting factor now because they're a limiting factor for you moving and being alive. They're limiting when you're not even moving. So when you start sitting in and out of a chair, forget about going all the way down with just a barbell on your back. Your quads are for sure the limiting factor of the squat, which means we can use a fraction of the weight and the quads are definitely the limiting factor, taking them closer to failure, which sort of, sort of checks all of our boxes. If we flip it around though and use the squat first, if it's not the greatest quad exercise, yeah, it stimulates the quads pretty well, but the expense of using a lot of weight and employing a lot of other muscles, then also it generates a considerable amount of systemic fatigue that we now have to work through and against in our leg extensions afterwards. So the leg extension is also not very systemically fatiguing. So if you lock into the leg extension first and just go crazy on it for four sets, <clears throat> can you squat after? 
The only problem you'll have with squatting is the local destruction of your quads that preceded it. Systemically, you won't be nearly fatigued as the other way around. If you squat first, do leg extensions after, the systemic fatigue you bring into leg extensions is very high, which interferes with your ability to maximally recruit quadriceps fibers for sure. But if you do leg extensions first and then quads, systemic fatigue is not an issue. You're probably more limited by local factors, which is good because local factors also grow the quads where systemic ones don't. So if even if you can only squat 135 now as opposed to 225, all of every single one of those squats that you do after leg extension are very, very easy to make quad limiting because the closer you get to failure and the more fatigue you sum up locally in the leg extension before, the more every single kind of squat you do after is quads, 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 quads. Your glutes are 10, 12 reps away from failure, so are your rectors, but your quads are now two reps shy of failure with you just taking the first couple reps of 135. Now you do sets of five to 10 with 135 and every single one of those reps is just massive, massive quad stimulus because your quads have now, have now such a low threshold for stimulus from so much local pre-fatigue. But if you systemically pre-fatigue, or sorry, it wouldn't be called pre-fatigue, if you systemically fatigue via decent squat first, there may be some things you can able to accomplish, but it for sure will hurt your more specific quad training later. So unless we're willing to make a statement that fundamentally leg squats are just better for the quads versus leg extensions, if we're saying they're roughly equivalent, but the leg extension favors the quad more, it's more quad limiting factor, it's more direct quad stimulus, I would just say by the principle of just priority and specificity, we want to put leg extensions first. If we were trying to increase squat performance in total, if you're trying to glow our glutes and spinal erectors and quads, for sure squats first because our leg extension is going to toast the rest of our squat afterwards. If we're an athlete, we want to be a technically great squatter, for sure squats first. But if we were going for strict quad stimulus and we had a certain amount of total recovery ability to fill in total work capacity and total systemic fatigue we can fill up, I would say it's, it, to me it makes a little bit more sense to put the leg extensions first because then everything after that is quad limited, whereas the other way around, there's kind of a question mark as to what is it that that first squat is doing and how much does it hurt the leg extensions after. Not a ton, but some. You get more out of your leg extensions and out of your squats if you did leg extensions first and squat second for the quads, but you get less for the quads if you squat first because we already admitted it's not that great for the quads anyways, the person's poorly leveraged, and you would get a decent leg extension stimulus after but not as good because you're carrying four or five sets or whatever of systemic fatigue of squatting coming into that. Me personally, squatting takes so much out of me. Sometimes people say like uh, some of my leg workouts will be like hamstring curls and then, and then leg presses and then squats. And someone's like, why did you do hamstring curls first? I mean, because when I'm done doing leg press and squats, my systemic fatigue is so high, my hamstrings are going to be just dog shit. They're going to be away. I won't be able to stimulate them nearly as effectively. My rep maxes will be down like crazy. But if I do my leg curls first, my hamstrings get blown, which is great, but also it's just not that much systemic fatigue and it's still enough for me to be able to finish this stuff after. So systemic fatigue is a big deal here. Let me know what you think about that. Yes. Yeah, so when we look at systemic fatigue, first, let's kind of, let's differentiate that a little bit first, like to like, okay, so if we look at CNS uh, activity, right, and what we're able to produce there, um, I mean, what are the things... I think we're getting to as a community is that like from a neurological perspective, we never fail from a CNS perspective before we fail locally, right? Like we always fail peripherally before, before uh, the central fatigue becomes a factor. Um, I think that's pretty well established now. Uh, now the other, now if we look at this from a biochemical level, because the big thing that affects our peripheral response to the nervous system is that biochemical impact too, right? So uh, the, 
while leg extensions themselves, right, so it's not as much neurological or, or biochemical demand as the squat, right, in that, in, in that essence, right? But what we have to look at is how does that really impact the second exercise? So like going from the leg extension to the squat, that local fatigue, which yes, is contributing, but getting that local fatigue before or after the squat, as long as we accomplish it, we can say that like, well, our goal is to accomplish it. Does it really matter where we accomplished it per se? It's like, well, if we can mechanistically get this, as long as we accomplished the fatigue and the stimulus, did it matter where it came from? So if we squat first, we're more locally fatigued, we go into the, or I'm sorry, we, we leg extension first, more locally fatigued, we go in. The other thing to consider is if anybody's actually done a hard set of leg extension, which that I don't, I've never seen you do a leg extension, Mike, or how you program them or whatever. What I can tell you is the way we program leg extensions, it's a pretty, it, it's pretty tough not to consider them systemically demanding. Um, less so, than squats though, right? Less, less than squats per se. Because here, here's the thing is if we'll put it this way, if I take myself because rep range is a huge context here, right? So if I'm doing, say, if I'm doing heavy squats, like six or less, okay, and I push myself to a zero RIR, like a, that, a zero RIR set of squats versus the zero RIR of leg extension, okay, because of the mechanical limitations of how locally fatigued I can get in a squat, they're going to be pretty comparable into how fatigued I am immediately afterwards, right? Like I'll get, and, and to, to the example you used of like, uh, if I do, if I did leg extensions to the point where I couldn't lift my foot, then all I would need to do is, uh, you know, sit down and stand up. I can tell you that I could do half of that. If I do leg extensions to the point where I can't lift my foot, I'll get the sit part but there will be no standing, right? Like, they're like if, if you took it to that degree of failure, right? I mean, we have videos of people who get stepping out of the leg extension, go to 10 degree knee bend and fall, right? Like, sure. like it's that level, it's that, it's that level of failure. So the, I think that's important is like, you know, we have to consider the context of, well, how hard are we pushing that leg extension? How close are we getting it to failure before? Let's just say we go to failure after. on both squat and leg extension, just to keep it yeah. simple. All right. And, and, and in what type of a rep range do you, do you want to qualify this at? But sets of 10 across the board. Sets of 10 across the board, right? Like so average I, 10, yeah. Right? Okay, so if I do 10 and 10, it's failure. Like, uh, and, and I'll tell you that, like, I've cheated uh, in a way. I haven't cheated, but, like, we've, we've, um, we've run comparisons on these in the past, like comparing pre- and post-exhaust mechanisms across squats, uh, chest, chest presses with uh, flies loaded in the short position and things like that. And the net outcome of like how much work volume you're able to do always tends to be a little higher in the post-exhaust when we're taking them to failure. Because totally. that this, the smaller second, this, having that more isolated, smaller exercise always tends to allow a greater degree of isolated failure in that when you put it in that second spot. But, be, but when you take it to failure first, it just takes away so much from that compound exercise that the net volume of work that you're able to do just, just goes down so much. But that's a good so thing, much. right? Because then you're it may hurting be, your it may other muscles. Not, right? the, the, well, this depends on the quality. Like, that depends on the quality of our other squat. If we say that we're still able to get, if we're saying that we've able to make that squat valuable for quads, then I'm going to say, well, 
then I'm not worried about trying to take the more, more glutes and stuff out of that because mechanically I've already done that. Otherwise, I would have just thrown it away, right? I think we can both agree that if for these situations, the best thing to do is just to pick the best exercise available, right? So we're, we're kind of working through this imaginary scenario where we've confined ourselves to like, you have to, you have to squat for quads. And how are we solving this issue? This may not be the most productive conversation ever, but I think sure there's you know, like some good yeah. things coming up. Right. Um, you know, so, I mean, in, in reality, you know, we can, we can go back and forth, but what I'll say is like, when we look at like the, the nervous system, going through this is that that's not going to be i'm going to say that's going to be less of an impact for leg extension if i have a that my large so think of it this way it's like say the leg extension is less systemically fatiguing than this than the squat okay if i'm going into a complex neurologically demanding exercise and i'm only small like only have a small amount of a systemic compromisation small amount of systemic fatigue it's still going to impact me because it's a high neurologically demanding exercise now, if I go, so so for instance if i if, if we were to say that somehow we were able to stress the nervous system or, or systemic fatigue was able to have an impact on the second exercise right going into the more systemically demanding exercise in a bit of pre-fatigue is going to have a greater drop off than having your systemically demanding exercise first and then going into an exercise where systemic fatigue just isn't a limiting factor for that exercise at all like so if we look at leg extension like i would have to be very neurologically beat up to not be able to take a leg extension to failure now i may not be able to i mean if we're looking at sets of 10 right i mean i don't have to be that neurologically fresh to do a set of 10 a leg extension now set of four or six like if we're going for prs and weight then then yeah but if i'm talking about digging digging my grave of quadricep failure right then then having some systemic fatigue is not going to get there. If anything, what it's going to do is it's going to allow me to accumulate local metabolite faster because I'm not going to be able to shovel the lactate out as fast because I've already got some in the blood from the squats coming in before. So it's almost like built-in occlusion training for my quads on top. But wouldn't of that work the other way too? Extension. Like if you did the squats and like if you did the like extensions first and the squats second, wouldn't that same principle apply except even more? Because except then the that squats you're not going to have you're not going to have as much local fatigue. Right, which is what we're trying. Put, put, like, here's what I look at: is like, if I'm trying to reach a goal stimulus, um, I want to make sure that uh, whatever what, whatever I'm doing when I hit the failure point was the most isolated thing. Right, because that's the greatest amount of stimulus occurs closest to failure. So, so if I have two, if I have a squat that's half and half, and another exercise that's very isolated. I'm going to say, well, I want to hit failure in that very isolated exercise. Because but if you're pre-exhaust, you can hit... do it in both. If you're pre-exhaust, you get it both. Well, I yeah. don't know. I'll hit. Will I hit failure in the quads, really, or to the same degree in that exercise? And then the other thing is, is like, if I'm doing these two exercises back to back, do I need to hit failure to both, or is that now overshooting the stimulus? Right, like to the point where it's like, okay, if I do that, it was so now metabolically demanding or, or whatnot that it kind of like now the session, I mean, it's just, it's just not yeah. going to put it. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course.
The Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.